Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel coming to you from my apartment. We're all recording remotely now uh, due to the coronavirus. I'm sure many of y'all are uh, working from home now as well. We've got a great show for you today. We'll be diving into what's all the craziness that's going on in the oil market over the past week. Joining me today to break it all down is Industry Focus contributor Jason Hall. Jason, how's it going? Nick, the world is on fire. Yeah, there's really no getting around it. You know, the stock market's <laughs> down over 6% today. You know, looked just a second ago over the past month, down almost 25%. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm looking at it. I'm looking at it right now, and as of this minute, so it's what about a little after one o'clock in the afternoon today. Uh, the S and P 500 is down 25 and a half percent, and the Dow is down 27.2 percent from the uh, peak earlier this year. So that's yeah, that's what we've seen. Yeah, from from record highs in the stock market to you know now we're officially in a bear market. You know, Jason, I'm 27, so as an investor, this would be my first bear market to uh, to witness. What, how should we be thinking about this as investors? I know you've been through a couple of these. Yeah. So first of all, I, I think this is a reminder. You, you have to have a plan. Number one, right? You have to have a plan for a couple reasons. Number one, you build a plan based around your financial objectives, whatever your goals are. So then you invest appropriately based on that, right? So you're 27. I'm 43. Um, we both, for most of our financial goals, have years and years to play out, right? So decades, really, uh, which makes stocks the appropriate investment because times like now. We don't really have to be freaking out and selling to try to avoid some some low point, right? Because it's not a material thing that's going to hurt our ability to pay the bills because we're not, you know, retiring next year or something like that. So somebody that's, you know, closer to retirement, you know, within, you know, a couple of years that is full in equities right now, they're, 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 you know, their retirement just got delayed or hurt, right? Because, you know, they've remained in an equity that's exposed to this volatility. So you have a plan, right? So you build that plan. And the plan, number one, helps you kind of avoid those unforced errors. But also, it gives you something to focus on. And I think that's a big thing right now, because there's so many people that all they're doing is they're checking a couple of emails from work, and then they're freaking out, and they flip over to, you know, Yahoo Finance or Fool.com main page or something like that, and they see the market's way down. And then they open up their 401k or their 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 brokerage account and they see that it's down and they they don't know what to do and it's fun i've been thinking about it this morning and it's like you know i i think i'm pretty level headed right and i have a plan and i follow the markets daily and i write about it but i still feel it's almost like you know you go you you go to the you've been to the beach right and you go out and you stand in the water and then the tide starts going out and like you feel it physically pulling your body i I could almost feel a physical tug to act um, because of, of just, I mean, it's, it's human nature, right? So it's really tough. But I think having a plan gives you something to do and helps you distract yourself. Um, and if, if you don't, if, you know, if, you, if you're young and you don't really have a plan, the best thing to do is just to avoid it. Don't log into your accounts because the worst thing you can do is act right now by selling and lock in the losses you know, it feels like this could this could last for a long time, and it, and it could, right? But we really don't know. I mean, if you think about the average recovery time when we have these kind of sell-offs and these kind of panics, is you know the market tends to recover, you know, not very much longer than it takes to fall. Um, and then next thing you know, you know, you look at your account and you sold out, 
and the market's above where you sold and you didn't even realize it. So I think that's a really important reminder is thinking about things historically. You know, you want to, you want to avoid acting just on your impulse because you, you, your, your, your better nature is telling you, I got to get out of this before it gets worse. You know, we don't know. I mean, today, today for example, there's, there's, I can't say specific names, but there are stocks that I've seen fall you know, close to 20%, you know, in the past couple of days that provide services that are, I mean, they're bulletproof, they're recession resistant, and they're necessary no matter what happens with the economy, no matter how bad, you know, the health, the health scare from, from coronavirus is that are just down insane levels. So there's, you know, people are, people are selling the exact kind of business you want to own right now, just out of just sheer, sheer, sheer panic and, and fear. So, you know, you, you have to have a plan. You have to work your plan. And if you don't have a plan and you have time on your side, you, your plan needs to be to do nothing right now and avoid making mistakes like selling just because, the you know, it seems like the world's on fire. Yeah, I'll tell you, for my, you know, personally how I'm trying to approach things in, in my portfolio is really to go back to those first principles, right? So, you know, stocks are down really significantly, but what you hold, what you actually own has not changed. You own a little piece of all these businesses that you've invested in. And you know some of these businesses are going to be really hurt in a significant way, and some aren't. But five years down the line, where do we think these businesses are going to go? Do they still have good prospects? Um, and, and that's why it's really important uh, to, to have that mindset of, I'm a business owner, versus you know paying attention to the fluctuations of the stock market over the short term. And I know it's really scary. You know, As a younger person, when I see these, these numbers move, maybe it's moving four figures in my portfolio. If you're older than me, you might be seeing it move six figures. And seeing that number is, is really scary. But it's important to remember what you hold hasn't really changed. It's just the quoted price of what you hold has changed. Exactly. No, that's exactly it. I think. I think you know if you can if you can be as 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 uh, you know just pragmatic as possible. Look at the th- th- the names of the companies that you own and not the numbers that have changed. To your point, and think about that business when you bought it last year, five years ago, or six months ago, or two weeks ago, and then think about a year from now and two years from now and five years from now, think about where do you think that business is going to be at that point and not focus on the price, right? I guess that's, that's kind of what you're saying is that's, you know, and that, and that can definitely make it much easier. Yeah. Jason, do you have anything that you go to in times like this to maybe keep yourself from staring at your portfolio, tend to distract yourself, keep you in that, uh, you know, positive mindset? Yeah, I think, I think, you know, my specific example obviously is, uh, as a, as a writer and contributor to The Motley Fool, you know, I feel I have a certain duty to talk about the market in broad terms and also specifics and share my experiences. So that's an easy way for me to distract myself, right? Because I focus on my work, right? Because, you know, my work is, is I think, doubly important in times like this. And I, and I think that, you know, that's an important thing for most other people to do too is, is you know, focus on other things, focus on the things that, that matter. So for example, right now, obviously a, a very real concern is, you know, uh, coronavirus out, outbreak could very well cause, you know, a global recession, right? So, you know, I think, I think people should focus on other things that they can do proactively to help their financial situation, um, focusing on things to, to help you uh, ride out a potential recession. So, you know, things like uh, making sure you're dedicating part of your earnings into a cash safety net. Um, so, so, I mean, there's lots of little things like that that you can do. Um, if you got some time off, go fishing. I mean, <laughs> you know, um, mow the lawn. I mean, really, just it's, it's, it's really 
think about your day-to-day life and continue to focus on those habits that you have and not diverge too much. So it's really an extension of kind of the way you should manage your investments is you still stick to your regular plan of the way you, you, uh, you go through life and, and don't get too distracted just because it seems like everything's coming apart. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I'll tell you, for myself, I've been listening to a lot of Jimmy Cliff this week, a lot of reggae stuff. Maybe gets me in a better mood uh, when everything is kind of collapsing around me. Uh, so, uh, you know, maybe try that out, folks. Uh, so, so let's get into uh, this oil news. Obviously, really crazy moves this week on Monday. Oil plunged 24%. It's worst day since 1991. So literally, we have not had a day that significant since before I was born. Uh, and this comes after disputes over the weekend between Russia and Saudi Arabia over production cuts. Jason, why was now the time where this you know uh, system of, of production cuts really collapsed uh, between these OPEC plus members? So I think it's a it's a convergence of a lot of things, um, and we need to go back a little bit further. Um, over the past few years, uh, Saudi Arabia has really you know acted as a stabilizing force in uh, in global oil, um, as as U.S. shale production has steadily grown over the past five or six years. Saudi Arabia has really got its uh, OPEC members, uh, along with um, Russia, uh, to agree to multiple production cuts to prop you know crude oil prices up. Um, and, and you know midweek last week, so a little over a week ago now, uh, looked like we were going to see the same thing happen. Um, OPEC was set to take uh, about a million barrels in daily production off the market, and OPEC members had agreed to it. On Friday, word came out that uh, the proposal um, had been cranked up uh, and included OPEC+, Plus, which includes Russia and a few other uh, nations that, that have state-controlled oil production. Uh, and they raised the, the target to 1.5 million. So OPEC was going to take a million, and that other half a million was, was almost all Russia. A lot of it was going to be Russia. Um, uh, apparently, Russia just decided to just kind of I don't know if you could say they played chicken with uh, with the Saudis or they just you know walked away from the table, but they really much balked. And the word is a lot of it was that they were tired of taking cuts to uh, to prop up the market so that U.S. shale producers could continue to to take market share. Very very quickly, um, Saudi Arabia did a 180. Um, so this you know this went from Friday to over the weekend. Saudi went from trying to stabilize the market to about as close to a scorched earth uh, approach as you could take. They slashed their, their prices by like 20%, contacted a bunch of their largest customers. So you think about uh, China, South, South Korea, um, Japan, by a lot of Saudi oil. Uh, so they, they just they went from let's, let's, let's hold prices up uh, to you know, we're going we're gonna to ramp up. We're going we're gonna to produce 12 million barrels in April. That's our goal. When all these current agreements we have for production expire – we're going to ramp up to 12 million barrels per oil in April. They officially, the Saudi government officially informed Saudi Aramco uh, that, 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 that it needed to get to that 12 million. Uh, then, then Monday happened, right? And that's the worst day in almost three decades uh, for, uh, for crude prices. Um, and, I mean, the thing is that it's, it's, this is underpinned by uh, a couple of things, right? It's not just how much more oil they're producing in a, in a relatively full market, but it's happening at the same time that, that um, global oil demand is almost certainly going to fall in the first quarter of the year. 
back in early February, we were hearing from a couple of the big um, big groups that cover the market that the, that they were lowering their expectations for Q1 to see oil demand decline, uh, primarily just because of what was happening in Wu, the you know in the Wuhan area in China um, that was going to affect Chinese oil consumption. Um, I mean, things have only gotten worse since then. Right. It's really been a one-two punch of you have this massive supply shock of, of Saudi Arabia and Russia announcing they're going to increase production. United Arab, United Arab Emirates have also announced that they're going to increase production by about 33%. And just to go to point out how scorched earth this is, you mentioned the 12 million barrels per day. I've seen just in the past couple of days announcements that the Saudis want to bump their production up to 13 million barrels per day, yeah. which if you look yeah, at their capacity, than- it's only for 12 million. So they're going to start pulling oil out of storage in order to really lean on uh, the market. And this comes at a time when we've got this massive demand shock uh, at the same time from coronavirus. We talked about maybe a month ago uh, when Tracy Shukart was on the show, when they were starting to cancel flights between the U.S. and China. That's about 600 barrels of oil each way across the Pacific. Well, now last night, uh, President Trump announced that they're going to cancel all flights to Europe. So that's a significant amount of oil coming off the market as well. Again, while all this supply supply is coming down, uh, just just a really tough I've, position um, to be. Nick, Nick, I've I've heard that cruise ships use a lot of oil too. Is that is that true? That is accurate. That is accurate. They emit a lot of emissions <laughs> as well. Uh, it's it's yeah. So m- lots of industries that use massive amounts of oil are are either not. Uh, in operation or significantly cut back. And so lots of demand coming off the market while we're flooding just incredible amounts of supply. Uh, It's just really a tough situation. I mean, we look at these oil companies that many of these shale companies have break-evens in the 50s. And we've had just in the past month or so, oil prices fall from where these shale companies were probably barely uh, profitable to, I mean, $31 oil, these folks are just burning cash in in a really significant way. So you're going to have CapEx cuts, dividend cuts. What should we be looking for there, Jason? So uh, first of all, um, I I just want to clarify, you said, uh, you know, barely profitable at 50. No, no, let's let's be honest. Most of these independent shale producers, they're not profitable even at 50. You know, there's so much debt. Uh, the capital invest, inve- investments that they con- they constantly put back into the business just to maintain production. Plus, so many of them have tried to grow. You know, these these companies have burned billions and billions of dollars in cash, even when oil prices were essentially double where they are. Um, so, um, you know, kind of, kind of, so here, quick update for you: uh, West Texas crude um, just fell below 32. It's at uh, 31.89. It's down three percent today. And uh, Brent, which is the big global benchmark, is down another four percent. It's below. Th- it's it's below. It's thirty four dollars and change right now. That's where we are. Um, the and the the reality is that th- there are a bare handful of um, of 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 U.S. Uh, independent oil producers um, that can that can make break even cash flows. At, uh, at current prices, I mean, just a bare handful. Um, so it's it's really it is an ugly time to uh, to be in that industry, and there are very few that uh, that, that can survive a sustained period of, of prices at, at this level. Right. I mean, I was looking at some some data from Goldman Sachs as well. If you average out the big oils in the U.S. and you take into account capex, dividend, that sort of thing, you're still looking at break evens. You know, the high 40s, low 50s. So, you know. I think no matter who the players are you're looking at in the in, in the extraction part of the market, whether it's big oil or not, 
you're going to see significant CapEx cuts. You're going to see dividend cuts. We've already seen that uh, with Occidental Petroleum. Uh, we've seen uh, several companies, you know, reports of in the middle of the day, shutting down production, pulling, uh, pulling folks, folks off the well. Uh, yeah, I mean, if, you're, if you are an executive of an oil company right now, what would you be doing right now, Jason? Um, probably finding my, uh, f- finding, finding my religion, I think is a, probably a good place to start. Uh, no, seriously, I think, I think the reality is that, uh, these guys, I mean, they have to circle the wagons, you know, as, as quickly as they can. And the, the, the ones that are going to survive are the ones that entered into this with some ability, some, some amount of liquidity and without, um, a, a lot of current debt. In other words, debt maturities that are happening in the next, you know, 12 months, um, so th- those are the ones that are going to be able to, to, to get through it. But I think the things that have to happen immediately is you have to cut operating costs as fast as you can. So that, that means that their, their in- internal employees are the ones where you're probably going to see the first cuts. Uh, Diamondback Energy, for example, um, they announced a couple of days ago that they, 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 they were cutting completion crews. So the crews that went out to actually bring the wells online, uh, they cut that by a third and they're they're working as quickly as they can to idle uh, at least three of their drilling rigs. Um, here's the thing: the way that this industry works is a substantial amount of the work is contracted um, and done by third parties, and those contracts stipulate a lot about you know when things end. So it's not it's not really easy for a lot of these companies to turn on a dime. Uh, because they, they've hired and contracted a company to do a certain amount of work. So those contracts have to play out uh, before they can even start cutting costs. Um, so I think the other thing that you're going to see is companies um, are going to start relying on their internal inventories for certain things. So you think about uh, drill pipe, you start thinking about uh, uh, parts for drilling rigs, um, frack sand, fracking fluid, um, they're, they're going to immediately stop uh, ordering additional inventories of those things, and they're going to focus on working through what they have, what they've already acquired, and what they already possess. So you're going to see that all those, those third-party service providers that sell stuff, um, they're, they're going to immediately see their cash flows you know, come to a halt because the producers are going to try to preserve cash by living within the things that they already own. Um, um, yeah, I tell you, it's it stinks for for anybody that works in the oil field oil field right now. Um, yeah, there's a lot of people that are going to lose that are going to lose jobs over the next you know six months. Yeah, and this is you know it comes under conditions as you mentioned where where these companies were struck a lot of these shale companies anyway were, were struggling uh, to make money and you know as we mentioned I think again that that show we we did with Trace Shukart maybe a month ago um, there's a wall of debt maturities coming for a lot of these folks so so I think it, we can expect. Uh, some bankruptcies, I, I think, without a doubt. And when, when, when that sort of thing happens, Jason, how should we think about, you know, the midstream, these folks that are, that, you know, their customers are the ENPs. How should we think about that, uh, you know, down the line? Yeah, that's something you and I talked about the other day is that um, it's, it's, so you think about the energy industry and you think about trying to find places where it's safe to invest. And midstream companies are generally thought of as, hey, these are the safe places. They don't have the exposure to, to energy prices. Their cash flows are locked in by these long-term contracts. But to your point, if you're, if you're, a, 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 if you're a midstream operator and you focus on gathering um, and, and your, your biggest customers are smaller, independent uh, producers that have a lot of debt, 
um, those rock solid contracts <laughs> don't help you much when that uh, when that uh, uh, producer goes you know is is insolvent right and they go bankruptcy. Um, you get some recovery, um, but yeah, but but even those are 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 exposed. So I think the the biggest thing right now, and we have to remind investors, is that the, the, there's going to be opportunities. Um, there's no doubt. We're going to look back six months, maybe probably more like a year, two, three, four years down the road. And we're going to look back and we're going to say, wow, if I had a bot, you know, uh, Joe's drilling, I, you know, I could have made a ton of money. Um, but, but there's, there's so much uncertainty right now that I think the best thing, and then, you know, things, you know, we're not going to recover quickly. You know, Saudi, Saudi Arabia is playing a long game here to reestablish what, a marginal barrel of oil looks like, um, and push as, as much of marginal oil off, you know, out of production as it can. You know, so I think investors need to realize we're going to have time to really evaluate the market, find the strong uh, companies, and then invest and still get, you know, a, a great a great price that that pays off as as the market recovers. But you know, right right now it's just a good time to be kind of just watching and, and learning. Yeah, I think it's an important thing to remember. You see a lot of these companies fall, you know, 50, 60, even more uh, percent in the past couple weeks. And you say, man, these, these companies are looking cheap. It's important to remember, especially if you're somebody who likes to look at price earnings, that we, we really can't write in that earnings number with any type of certainty right now, given the way the market is shaking out. So it's really tough uh, to identify value. I think when you're looking at companies now, you kind of teased this earlier, Jason, it's really about looking at the balance sheet. Who are the companies that are going to be able to survive this period of uncertainty, we don't know how long it's going to last. When you, when you think about that, are there any companies that you think, hey, I think they have the balance sheet that they might be able to ride out this storm? Yeah, there, there, there are a couple that I, that I think um, that, 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 have, that have things in their favor. Uh, Diamondback Energy is an example. Uh, it, I mean, you look, it does carry a lot. It has over $5 billion in debt, uh, but it, it only had a small amount that was maturing this year, and it refinanced that, I think, maybe in January or early February. So it's not at the immediate risk that many of its peers, you know, that debt wall you were talking about, um, you know, it just it doesn't have that risk. Um, it's also acted quickly to bring operating costs down. We talked about the complete, completion crews that it's already taken out of the field. Um, it's plans to, to, to idle drilling rigs quickly. Um, so, that, you know, it's taken steps to, to lower its capital spending. Um, it, it also has some reasonably low cost production. Um, you know, it, it built a baseline for funding about 3 billion in CapEx this year with oil prices at 45. Most, most, most of the folks out there weren't even talking about anything below 50. Uh, so yeah, we're, we're nowhere near 45 right now. You know, West Texas crudes, wow, it's down almost 5% now just in the past few minutes. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's pushing 31 and change. Uh, now, but the point is that that the, 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 they do have some lower cost production, and it has the balance sheet strength that that should help it. Man, and it has a management team that's done a really good job of of kind of focusing on on you know strengthening the balance sheet and acting opportunistically. Um, another one that I, that I think is uh, worth putting on your list is Pioneer Natural Resources. Uh, has a stronger balance sheet than many of its peers. Uh, it has more cash on its balance sheet. Uh, then, then it has debt maturing, uh, in the next, and then it has current debt, uh, and it has a manageable long-term debt profile has good liquidity. Um, in the past few years, management's really focused 
while, while so many of the the other guys out there have, have have you know they've 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 used drill you know drill more wells as their answer to everything. Uh, Pioneer Natural Resources is really focused on uh, improving its cash flows um, and not spending to just grow production. And that's I think that's going to pay off, and it's it's going to be in one of the better positions to 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 ride out you know this this uh, this ongoing thing. Uh, beyond that, I think I think you start looking at the oil majors, uh, BP, Total, and Shell. Uh, from from what I've seen, look like they have some of the better uh, strength in terms of their production costs um, compared to some of the other some of the other majors. When you, especially when you start factoring in like dividend obligations and things like that, um, it, you know, in, into thinking about how much it costs you know they need to realize for every barrel of oil they produce. Um, also I think, um, you're, you're looking at, um, companies that are a little, especially Total and Shell, you're looking at a little more diversification. Uh, Shell has a lot of strength in, in, uh, in natural gas. Um, and that, and that kind of, kind of helps it ride out what's going on in the oil markets. Um, but again, they're diversified businesses, they're integrated. So right now you think about, uh, petrochemical manufacturing, you think about refining, um, those businesses tend to be a little more immune to these price shocks, and sometimes refining uh, margins can actually improve uh, when oil prices fall. So there's, you know, there there are things there that are kind of kind of good, um, and 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 again, I think these are the kind of companies also that have the financial strength to last. That they tend to carry, you know, billions and billions of dollars in cash on their balance sheet. Um, often they they have, you know. Um, you know, um, the best credit you're going to find. So they, they don't pay the kind of interest rates that the smaller independents do. Um, and institutional investors, you know, buy their debt. Institutional investors invest in these companies. Um, so they're, they're, they're kind of a source of stability. Last one that I'll put out um, that I like a lot is Phillips 66. Now, it's, it's, an, it's an integrated uh, major um, oil company, but it doesn't produce oil. Uh, it's a refiner, um, a petrochemicals manufacturer, a fuel marketer. Um, and you know, some of those businesses are going to suffer, right? It sells a ton of jet fuel and <laughs> right now isn't the best time to be in, in the jet fuel business. Um, it's also a midstream operator and it actually has a pretty strong midstream operation. Um, some of its subsidiaries, uh, do a lot of gathering. So there's some weakness there, but again, it's an incredibly strong balance sheet, um, and I think that it's, it's, it's one that is probably of all the majors, it may be at the top of my list, um, even uh, over some of the producers. Yeah. All those, I, th I think, I think good names in the near term, really hard to see who benefits with these companies that can survive, uh, you know, through this downturn, you know, at least, at least they'll have, they'll have, you know, some, they'll still be in the game, uh, on the back end. The only thing I can think of right now, that's really going to meaningfully benefit, uh, you know, you can maybe say refiners, but storage folks. I mean, there's going to be a boatload of oil on the market with all with all the uh, the Saudis and Emirates and Russia. So, uh, you know, folks who provide storage are in kind of a good position near term. But uh, you know, I don't know if I would invest in that as, as my thesis. Now, Jason, as we look out further, we've talked a lot, uh, you know, on this show and all, and you know, privately about a lot of this, uh, you know, shale production that doesn't make money sooner or later is going to have to get off the market. Uh, so it creates conditions where other companies maybe can thrive and that sort of thing. As you look out, you know, three, five years from now, 
do you see this downturn as kind of creating those conditions uh, where we clear out some of this low-priced oil? And you know, if so, who would be positioned to benefit on the back end? So I, the, uh, the 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 independent EMPs just continue to disappoint me. I mean, we go we go back to the prior crash. You know, in 2014, oil was still you know in the you know hundred just over a hundred dollars a barrel, and it fell sharply and. I think was it 2016 February 2016 we saw 26 26 dollar oil um and you know the industry we had a lot of you know the reset button got hit on a lot, on a lot of independents back then and a lot of us thought you know we were going to see this period of responsible investment and 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 I mean the reality is you know the memories of 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 the industry tend to be very very short I think that uh I think that the reality is if we really I, I I just I don't think I don't think I don't think this is going to be a disruptive opportunity. I just think it's going to be a reminder that the that the tried and true um, uh, things that that always work are going to work this time too. It's the strong balance sheet, the 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 good the good uh, operational excellence. So the companies that you know that that run lean and and focus on keeping operational costs low, but also have flexibility to, you know, lever their operations up and down to respond to the market. You know, those are the ones that are going to do well. Um, but yeah, I just, I don't see this as a, a redefining moment. I just think it's just a, you know, a, a here we go again. We're going to see a bunch of these little independents go bankrupt. We're going to see some of the better ones survive. And we're going to see a bunch of executives when oil prices go back up, um, l- leverage back up into the same situation because everybody's going to forget. Right. It's survival of the fittest at this point, And then, you know, when it things is. normalize, uh, we'll see. One last question I want to ask you about, and then we'll move on to listener question. Um, there's been some talk about that uh, maybe the government should come in and help bail these folks out. What's your opinion on that? <laughs> That's my opinion. Right. No, seriously. Um, it's, it's, so, um, uh, Harold Hamm, uh, Continental Resources, yep. right? It's yep. uh, the founder and CEO there. Uh, is is friends with uh, President Donald Trump, and um, I, I guess they're trying to float the idea that 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 the government needs to view this as dumping, right? As as the same thing that uh, China and other countries have done with the steel market, flooding it with these illegally subsidized steel products to you know to drive prices artificially down. I think I think that doesn't hold water because. Um, Saudi Arabia can produce oil for about $9 a barrel and change. So they're not illegally subsidizing oil below prices that they could produce it for to drive them. They're just, they're just slashing the price, right? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's sad that, you know, you know, we don't have uh, oil that's necessarily um, American oil that's necessarily price competitive, uh, with uh, with uh, the the some of the oil that's that's in the Middle East and other parts of the world, we've already pumped all of ours out, right? We've used it over the past eighty years, and now the shale is just cost more to produce. So so I don't I don't put any any um, any um, I, yeah I just I don't I don't buy that at all. The other thing too is that if you look at how this industry has operated over the past few years, it has been the shale has been negative even with when oil prices were double. If you look at the amount of money that was given to executives and compensation, the amount of debt that's been taken on, you, you start adding in all the real costs 
and and shale hasn't made money. It did make money when 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 prices were double where they are, because the industry as a whole doesn't really practice very good capital responsibility. So no, I don't I don't want to see uh, taxpayers bail these guys out. Um, this isn't like banks where it's a service that the entire economy relies on um, to keep these to keep this industry stable. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. It's just, you know, <laughs> oil just got cheaper. And if a bunch of these guys go out of business because they can't manage their business, uh, I don't need, feel responsible to bail that out. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with you. You know, when you, when you talk about uh, this industry that has really never produced significant profits and free cash flow at any point in time, when you look at the executive compensation structure to a lot of these folks where these guys are getting massive bonuses when they, you know, they're not even producing sustainable free cash flow, juicing production when they're, you know, their their next marginal barrel of oil they bring on isn't profitable. I just think there's been massive rent seeking in this industry by a lot of executives, and I think to bail these folks out would just be another rent seeking behavior uh, that's just undeserved and just a waste of capital, in my opinion. Uh, and I, as a taxpayer, would be very upset uh, uh, to to bail those folks out. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think I think a much smarter use of that capital if you're if you really if you want to if you really want to help. The American taxpayer, right? If you wanna, if you wanna, because I get the idea. Because let's let's be honest. I'm gonna I'm gonna make a bold prediction that over the next six months, the the oil industry is gonna lose a hundred thousand jobs uh, in the U.S. Um, uh, who knows? Maybe it's it could be a lot more than that. Maybe maybe I'm wildly overestimating it, but I don't think I am. So you think, it, and that sucks. I mean, I, I can't stress it enough. I, I hate that. You know, people are going to lose their jobs. My brother lives near San Antonio. He has friends that that that, uh, that work in the industry that that drive frac sand trucks that that work in uh, uh, that work on you know on rigs. It's it's gonna really be terrible because a lot of people are gonna lose out. And I get so angry because executives in so many of these companies that are gonna go out of business and they're gonna people are gonna you know their employees are gonna get hammered. These guys are still going to walk away with with you know with with seven figures and more in their bank accounts, and that really really frustrates me. But my point is, instead of throwing more money at these at these at these capital destroyers, why don't we just retrain all all of these people into uh, you know renewable energy jobs? There you go. There's uh, let's 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 that's a better return on my uh, my my taxpayer money if we do that. Am I getting a little spun up, Nick? What do you think? Am uh, I? <laughs> you and me both, man. You and me both. I, well, I've, I was I was spun up on this industry before any of this happened. But uh, yes, yeah, so let's move on to our listener question. Ron wrote in. He said, "Hey guys and gals, I had a question, and I'm sure I'm not the only fool with that question. I also thought, since not everyone listens to all the podcasts, and they should, he'd ask all of us. The stock market is now falling because of all the fear, and people are selling. His question is: If somebody is selling shares, there has to be somebody else on the other end who is buying the shares." He keeps against his will seeing the headlines in the news talking about how much selling is going on in the market. Ask if he is mi- if he is missing something. He's hoping he's not missing something because he's been sitting on cash in his IRA for a while. Is waiting for a pullback, and this is Christmas in March, possibly longer. Jason, thoughts on uh, Ron's question? Yeah, I, I think it gets back to, to to what we were talking about having a plan, and 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 I'm gonna I'm gonna talk a little bit about 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 how what my plan is and how it's how it's helped me. Um, over, over this past little bit of time. So first let's talk about, you know, there's that, there's always a buyer for every seller and seller for every buyer. Uh, but just the mechanics of the way this works when sellers are leading the market, in other words, there are more sell offers going in 
than there are buy offers, that's what drives prices down because there's more supply <clears throat> than there is demand. So that's why prices have fallen so much because sellers are, are driving the prices down. Um, so that's just the fundamentals of the way it works. But getting back to my plan, right? So as, as a relatively young person who has you know, multiple decades for, for things to play out, Kind of the way I think about this is, you know, I wrote, I wrote, you know, not too long ago about, you know, the amount of cash I keep in my portfolio, and I think at the time it was around five percent. That's so. That's my retirement account. So that's uh, taxable. You know, kind of the, the whole, all of my investing in equities, I keep around five percent in cash. And when the stock market fell about ten percent and then kept going, I, I deployed about half of that. And now looking back, and I, I think I invested in around 10 different stocks with that money. So you got to love no trading fees, right? Because it's easier to make smaller little purchases. I just want to point that out. That's a cool thing. So I was able to spread my money around and I bought about 10 different stocks over the past week, you know, week and a half or somewhere around there. And looking back, you know, they all look like stupid decisions, right? The market's fallen so much since then. Um, but here's the reality. You get 10% corrections just about every year. So I think if you wait too long, you're going to miss out on those just about annual opportunities to buy on a little bit of a market dip by waiting for the big one. Um, because the, when the big one happens, it's, it's a dozen years now, right? Since we had the last big one, the markets from the bottom to the top was up like 500% in total returns. So if you sat on the sidelines waiting for the next big one before you bought you know, you missed massive, massive returns, right? So, so that's a big part of my plan. A big part of my process is when I do see, you know, a double digit dip, I always act a little bit more aggressively. So I've deployed about half of my cash. Now the market's fallen, you know, more than 25% at this point. So I am actively, aggressively looking to deploy the other half of that, of that cash. Plus my wife and I both, we have self-directed choices in our 401k, which means that we're able to buy stocks. The way that my 401k has worked is I generally make a couple of large contributions, you know, each year. And I'm actually getting ready to make a large contribution into my 401k towards 2019. This is a self-employed 401k. I can do it up until April 15th. So that's going to provide me regular additional capital that I'll be able to aggressively deploy. And I will probably, knowing me, I will probably deploy it relatively quickly over the next week or two because I tend to act pretty quickly. I could look back in a month or two months or even six months and it looks like I was a complete idiot and I spent it all way too soon. But history tells me two things. Number one, we get a lot more small drops and small crashes and small bear markets than we do you know, 2007 Great Recession, 60% drops. Those just don't happen very often. So you don't want to wait too long to, 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 to act. You want to, when you see great opportunity to buy a company that you really like, that the stock's fallen substantially in a short period of time, in one of these kind of the markets going crazy and everything's falling situations, you take advantage of that opportunity because of the second thing that, that, that you observe. I know if I look out, a few years from now, five years, 10 years from now, some of the investments that I will have made will still look dumb. I will lose money on some of them. It's just the reality of, of investing. This isn't about precision. So I'm going to make some, some bad investments in some companies that just don't pan out. They don't do well. 
Um, a few of them are probably going to do about what the market does, which is probably going to be very good from today, even if we fall another 20 or 30% or more from today, five to 10 years from now. I just, I just, that's, that's the way the market tends to work. And then there's probably going to be a handful that are going to absolutely crush it, that are going to, you know, they're going to go up, you know, 500% or a thousand percent, or they're, they're just, they're going to create massive amounts of wealth. They're going to, you know, they're going to make the, the ones that I lose money on or just don't do well. They won't, they won't even matter because the ones that do very well will make up for that. And then, you know, much, much, much more. So I think, I think to, to answer Ron's uh, kind of bigger question, you know, he's a little fortunate in his timing. And I think you have to attribute a little bit of luck, right? Because, you know, you go back to the end of the year, nobody really had any idea this was going to happen. Yeah, there were some, you know, there was a little bit about coronavirus and things were happening, but I, I, there's nobody that can say with any certainty, especially any layperson, that we really had any idea this was going to happen. So you have to acknowledge that luck has played a big role in having, you know, uh, if, if it's a substantial amount of money that's still there, it's still there. So my, my suggestion would be for Ron to, and any, not, not Ron directly, but Ron as, as, as a prototypical person in that situation, now is a good time to start deploying your capital into companies that you like, that if you look out a year from now, you look out five years from now, if, if they're what you think the future is going to look like, now is certainly a time to go ahead and start deploying some of that capital. You, may, you might regret it in a month, right? You might look at your portfolio and think, I'm stupid. Why did I buy this stock? It's fallen another 10% or 20 or 30 or whatever. Who knows? You know, I don't know what the market's going to do any more than anybody else. But again, I think if you look at the appropriate time period for owning stocks, which is multiples of years and decades when you can, buying in times like this is when you really create um, substantial wealth that, that changes, that changes your life and helps you reach your financial goals. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Jason. This is kind of what we said off the top. Times like this is when it's really important to go back to first principles, understand that you're a long-term investor, where we're not worried about what happens this year or this month, we're worried about what happens five years down the line. It's important to have uh, you know, a list of companies that if something like this happens and you know, all of a sudden the stock is down 20%, uh, maybe go buy some. That doesn't mean deploy all your cash on day one. I know over the past several years, everybody has gotten into this buy the dip. If you buy the dip, you know, it's, it's going to be up you know, uh, back. You know, you'll be making money in no time. I wouldn't expect that under these conditions, but I think it's, it's, it's a good time to start methodically deploying your cash into those companies that you're really confident about. You know, I'll tell you, I, I've been watching Match Group and Pinterest for a while in the past couple of weeks as those shares have fallen. I've picked up a few shares of that, and I've by no means bought my full position. Um, I've just kind of dipped my toe in the water, and I'm going to continue doing that uh, as things play out. And heck, if, if, if the stock price pops up, I still like the stock. It's, it, you know, they're not going to ring a bell for you at the bottom. And the other thing important to remember is when it's obvious to everyone that there are no more concerns, then you're not going to get a good price anymore. It's, it's, it's important to, to act before things are clear, because once things are clear, you know, the value is gone. Yeah, again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just hit on it again. I think the, the best way to think about it is don't try to be too precise, right? That's when you make mistakes, because it means you don't buy something because you expect that it's going to continue to fall. And that's a mistake. I think you just build in a reasonable margin of error, suck it up that you don't know what's going to happen in the short term and, and buy the great business to your point 
with the idea that time's going to be your best friend. Hey, you know what? I think we might have already we might have already fixed the market. The uh, the S and P five hundred is now only down about twenty four percent versus twenty five and a half. So. Hey, if we, Nick, keep, we, call, might, if we, we keep talking the rest of the afternoon, Jason, you know, maybe it'll get back to even. Uh, I, we've, already, we've already ran pr- pretty long for our listeners, so, uh, yeah. you know, we hope, uh, we hope you bear with us and, you know, hope uh, you can stay the course, stick to first principles, think five years down the line, next month or the next year is not going to be the end-all, be-all of the success or failure of your portfolio. Keep your mindset right, and uh, things will work out. Jason, thanks for coming on the show, as always. Thanks. As always, people on the program may own stocks discussed, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the glass. For Jason Hall, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening, and Fool on.